0: Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So what comes to your
1: mind when I say the word enemy? Or who? Who comes to mind when I say the word enemy? Enemy identified by the three big H's. Someone who is a hindrance. Someone who makes you feel or feels toward you hostile. And someone who might even want to do you harm. Maybe you'd sit there and say, Well, I don't have any enemies. Great. I'll trust you on that. Let me rephrase the question a little bit. Who do you identify as the wrong kind of people? Just use that term. Who are the wrong kind of people? You would caution your kids from becoming friends with them. You don't want them to move in as your next door neighbors. They might, you would, you, you, they might be the people you would say are the source of the worst problems in your neighborhood, on the job. Kids, the wrong kind of people are the kids who create all the problems at school. That's who I'm talking about. Don't raise your hand if you think it's you. The wrong kind of people are the ones who create the worst problems in our society, the worst problems in the world. I think one of the most destructive effects of 2020 and COVID and all that happened that particular year, one of the most destructive effects was the way it made a holy war out of everything. I mean, there's almost nothing untouched by it. Healthcare and the private choices we make with our own bodies, holy war. Race and gender, election results, public institutions and our perspective on them, like the media and universities and our court system, whether athletes and brands can make political statements at all. It's all holy territory, it's all holy war. It's what I call long haul COVID of the soul. Previously, people would disagree about these things. They would discover points, you know, they would discuss these things and discover points of disagreement and ask questions and defend their viewpoint. And they might even get excited about, you know, what they felt and how they were opposed. And then they would leave still friends. They called it agree to disagree or having a difference of opinion. But these days, disagreements like this can and do create instant and permanent antagonism and alienation no room for disagreement you're on the right side or the wrong side you're a good guy or a bad guy you're my friend or my enemy all it takes is a token a token of association and the unfortunate individual is summarily identified categorized reduced to that and dismissed it's all it takes just a token right If you if you in any way are associated with the wrong three letter combination like BLM or NRA identified categorized reduced to that and dismissed if you favorably comment on the wrong politician or the wrong news outlet you see someone with a particular garment like a medical mask on in public. You instantly know I'll never be that person's friend. Isn't this going on? I mean, do you still feel the effects of long haul COVID of the soul? I do. I think we all have it. And the obvious observation I want to make here is this judgmental, dismissive, polarizing spirit is obviously harmful to civil society. By definition, society can't exist if this is how we view each other. We won't have a society. But far worse for Christianity, far more important, is that this attitude is directly and powerfully opposed to the gospel itself and the culture the gospel promises to create. This long-haul COVID of the heart, where we are judgmental, self-righteous, and dismissive, is directly and profoundly powerfully contrary to the gospel and the culture. The gospel is the message that Jesus died for our sins. The gospel says there's no condemnation for those not who have the right three letter combo, but those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel says Jesus became the curse for us. So they aren't falling under any other curse. The gospel is the good news that God offers sinners full acceptance, no condemnation and peace with all one through Jesus, two for free and three to anyone who will repent and believe. That's the gospel. If you're not a Christian, that's all we wanted you to hear this morning. So you can start browsing CNN, but I hope you won't. If you've heard that, that's the thing. But there's more for us here from Jonah chapter two for Jonah chapter one. The gospel tells us that God offers sinners full acceptance, no condemnation and peace through Jesus for free for anyone who will repent and believe, even if they're the wrong kind of people. And because we are determined to be a church most clearly and most deliberately marked by the gospel, our elders are determined to help you get better from this long haul COVID of the heart. We don't want that in you. We're gonna to try to work that out of you. And I don't know of any better remedy than this little Old Testament book called Jonah. It's this delightful and subversive book. We're starting this series of eight sermons called God and His Enemies. I'm fully aware that it's an election year. It might or might not have something to do with why we're doing this series. Because our culture will tell us left and right who the bad guys are and how we should feel about them. And that's long call, long, why do I keep calling it long call? Long haul COVID of the soul. That's what it is. And they're just trying to make you sicker. But no, friends, we're going to look at these Old Testament books of Jonah and Nahum, eight sermons, seven chapters. They're both minor prophets. They're called that not because they're unimportant, but because they're short. They're both about the city of Nineveh and Israel's relationship to this city, her enemy. And they're both about how God deals with his enemies and how we as his people should as well. There's no better place in scripture, as I said before, to cure our hearts of that judgmental, self-righteous, dismissive attitude that is inherent to long-haul COVID of the heart. There's no better place than the book of Jonah. You might have heard about how Jonah is a book about the danger of running from God or the God of second chances. Or I listened to a podcast this week where the author gave the insane idea that it's about the potential of the human heart shown in repentance. I'm like, that can't get more humanistic. Or about the missionary heart of God. Okay, look, the book involves all of that, but it's about how God rewrites the script on who he favors and why and how he treats the wrong kind of people and who they are. In chapter 1, that's the point. Chapter 1 challenges us with the question of who the wrong kind of people are and how we can identify them. And what we're gonna see is God lavishes his mercy on anyone who repents, even people as hard-hearted and as evil, surprise, as Jonah himself. He's the bad guy. I don't know if you've ever heard the book of Jonah taught this way, but it's what actually is going on in this book. Couple notes about the book itself. And kids, aren't you glad you're here? And, and, you know, I I know kids venture is great and I, I know you love it and you should. But we're glad you're here with us this morning. We're going to do the story of Jonah. I mean, almost like what you'd get in Sunday school, except we don't have a flannel graph, and it might be a little longer. All right, a couple notes on the book of Jonah. Uh, Scholars discuss the genre of this book. They're wondering, like, what exactly is this thing? Is it a book of history? Is it prophecy? Is it biography? Kind of, but the technical literary category is satire. That's the category. If you love satire, you'll enjoy this book hopefully seen with the eyes of a fresh reading. Not that I'm going to say something new, I'm just going to point out what's actually there. Like, you know the thing you've heard about how Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because the people were so terrible? Not in the book. In fact, Jonah says something quite different. Jonah himself says something quite different about why he didn't want to go. He wasn't scared, he was mad. So the book is satire. Satire exposes human foolishness by ridicule, irony, and humor. This book is worth all sorts of good laughs. I hope you'll find it funny. There's also the question of the historicity of the book. Did this really happen? What are we dealing with? A myth, a parable, a fable? Jesus actually believed it happened. I don't know how to follow him without taking his same view of the book of Jonah. I truly don't. It doesn't save you to have his view of Jonah but it does inform whether or not you're actually following him and trusting him. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we wanna see a sign from you. And he said, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I don't know how Jesus can say that, and we still wonder about whether or not this is a literal story, true history. I just don't know, all right? I'm just gonna put that out there for you. That's where I'm planting my flag, with Jesus. It just feel safe to me, all right? So let's take a look at the story. Four scenes in chapter one. They're all identified with the, by the characters and the conflict that's going on. You see scene one, God versus Jonah in verses one to three. Scene two, the sailors versus the sea in verses four to six. Scene three, the sailors versus Jonah in seven to 16. And then verse 17, Jonah and as it said, the whale, verse 17, Jonah and the great fish. All right, let's look at God and Jonah. Verse one, the word of the Lord, came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Notice what you're seeing. It's a scenario not that unusual for a story in the Bible. A particular group of people are badly misbehaving. Happens all the time. Apparently, their neighbors are crying out to God so much that the evil of Nineveh is coming to his attention. It's arising before him. And so he sends a prophet to warn them. Let's get a little more familiar with these characters. The Lord, capital L, capital O, R, D. That's the name for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Apparently, he's not just the God of Israel, though because he has a message for Nineveh that he feels they need to hear. Then we see this man, Jonah. He's introduced as the son of Amittai. He's first mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings 14.25. In fact, that's his only other mention in the Bible other than in this book and in the teachings of Jesus. uh, 2 Kings 14.25 tells us that he lived during the reign of the Israelite king Jeroboam II. That was probably in the late or the early to mid part of the 8th century BC. So 790, 750, somewhere right in that ballpark. We also learn he made some predictions that came true. His father was named Amittai and he was from a town in Galilee called Gath-Hefer. That's all we know. And then this character Nineveh, the city, comes up in verse two. The best way to learn about Nineveh is to read the oracle of judgment from from Jonah's companion prophet, Nahum. If you want to read about Nineveh, you can look at that book, Nahum, where God's judgment is pronounced over that city, and especially read chapter 3. Or just read the very last verse. Just flip over a couple of pages. Nahum is one book away from Jonah. Nahum 3.19 Prophesying Judgment says, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you and your fall, your judgment, clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This is a bad town with the wrong kind of people. So the book opens with this typical prophetic formula. Look, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's what it meant to be a prophet. You received a message from God and you were accountable to go tell it. Now, if you were reading this book for the first time, what would you expect at this point? The word of the Lord came to a trusted proven prophet. Look at verse three. But not ever a good start. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Well, if you're reading this for the first time, you definitely wouldn't expect this, right? One of the challenges to reading and teaching the Bible is to help you see what's really there. Because we just tend to see what we expect to see and we get so familiar with it, it's like a lullaby, right? It lulls us to sleep and we're not surprised by the weirdness anymore. This is totally weird. There's nothing like this elsewhere in the Bible, where a prophet gets a message from God, and he directly disobeys. And you're immediately plunged into a bunch of questions, like, did God choose the wrong guy? How is Nineveh going to get the message? How are their neighbors ever going to get relief? What's going to happen to Jonah? How is this inspirational material for our lives? I mean, if I wanted to watch a rebel, I could look at any TV show, any movie, or I could look in the mirror, meet a rebel right there every day. How's this inspirational, right? I love it that Jonah doesn't even say a word. He just gets up and runs. You picture that dude sitting in his office. I don't know what he's doing. Writing a message, journaling, reading his Bible. Message comes from God. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Pfft, go on. My wife's very first piano recital as a teacher, uh, she asked me to video. And so I was sitting in the back with all the little assembly of of piano students out in front of me and they would get up one by one and go play the song. And I'm sitting there videoing and all of a sudden one little guy hops up, bolts out of the room without a word and doesn't come back. He's just not doing that. He's making clear right now what his intentions are for himself in that moment. It's Jonah. I can just picture him like gone. Nope. open rebellion against god absolute refusal scholars wrestle about where jonah was headed tarshish is not a known uh, city or location or region they speculate it might be spain it might be somewhere in T- we just don't know but the narrator tells us where jonah was headed twice you see it in verse three i tried to emphasize it in how i read he didn't care where he went as long as he got away from what the presence of the lord He is fleeing from God. And it's not that he was scared to go to Nineveh. If you want to read ahead, chapter 4, verse 2, in Jonah's own words, he tells us why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because those are the wrong kind of people for God to warn before he destroys them. Verse four, we pick up the action and see how this is going for Jonah. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them interesting here we've got the story starting by identifying the good guys jonah or the good guy and the bad guys nineveh send the good guy warn the bad guys god's coming better get it straight and we don't even get four verses in before god is starting to deal in a pretty severe way with a rebel a rebel who is the good guy What do we learn from that? We learn a whole bunch of things right there, don't we? We learn that this is a universally just God. He's not ethnocentric, he's not prejudicial, he's fair-minded. This isn't the story of a strong God beating up on weak fallen humans that got on his bad side. This is a just God who's dealing with people who are contradicting him and rebelling. We also learn that we're dealing with real life, not some mythical hero, right? Jonah's a real guy who doesn't like to be told what to do. I don't know if you know any real guys or girls like that. I know one really well. I put gel in his hair this morning. We also learned that here's a God who, though he might appear to be severe, he actually is using these things to get Jonah back on track. It'd be so easy for Jonah to go, see, I mean, you just beat people up. You know what? I mean, it becomes clear God's not trying to destroy Jonah. He's not trying to destroy anybody. He's trying to get his attention and get him back on track, right? I mean, he goes to extreme lengths to save this guy. Have you ever heard of anybody else being saved by a fish? I mean, God's forcing Jonah to deal with him, getting him back on track. Well, look at verse 5, halfway through. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I described this scene as the conflict between the sailors and the sea, and that is what's going on. Don't overlook the sailors. They're very important characters. Their reactions are crucial to understanding what's going on in the story. Their fear, their obedience to God and Jonah, their fear of God. I mean, all of what they're doing is important. Most of what's important about them is their innocence. This this writer makes a major point out of the religiosity of these sailors. Do you notice that? Here are some guys who have a God. They assume that he or she will answer their prayers and they instinctively cry out to him in their need. These guys have a stronger faith than Jonah at this point. And so the captain comes to him and says, cry out to your God, whoever that might be, maybe he will hear you. And these sailors are like offloading their livelihood, their cargo, which they've either bought and are going to sell, or they're responsible for, and they need to pay their owner back for. I mean, these guys are losing a lot because of this storm. In verse seven, they finally address Jonah. Oh, sorry. In verse seven, they get into the scene where they address Jonah. Now we see this scene between the sailors and Jonah. Verse seven, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come on us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come on us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? Of what people are you? So you can understand what's going on right i mean these are religious sailors their prayers have no effect they believe their gods would help them if they could so they assume somebody on board must have done something to offend one of those gods we've got to appease a god in their view the storm is divine retribution someone on board did something wrong and this is divine punishment let me just pause here and ask a question is that the biblical view If you said yes, you're right. But if you said no, you're right. I mean, the biblical view is that our actions have consequences and that God corrects misbehavior. But the biblical view also is not every circumstance in our lives is just retribution for some wrong thing we've done. So they're right and wrong. I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. So they go to Jonah, the lot falls on him, and they start out with this polite question, verse 8 hey, uh, we're just wondering while we go down if you know why this is happening, right? I mean, the lot literally fell on him and they're like, tell us on whose account this evil has come on us. Do you have any idea? But then they have this rapid fire series of questions which demonstrates, we know you're the guy. Just give us the info, right? And they ask, all right, we want your occupation, hometown, nationality, and ethnicity. We want it all right now. Fill it in. And you know what underlies all of that? They're like, what kind of person could have offended his God to bring this calamity on us? And worse, what kind of God could we be dealing with that he would do this? That's, that's what their questions are getting at. Look at verse nine, Jonah answers them. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I don't know about you, but if I were standing there, I would have been like, oh, do you? You fear him? Is that why you're disobeying him and overtly rebelling again? You fear him? Really? Not convinced, bro. (laughs) Then the men, verse 10, were exceedingly afraid. Yeah, they were. They're like, we are dealing with a man who is living in direct opposition to his God. How did he get on board? What is wrong with us? Who approved his passport? That's what, I mean, they're like, what? Jonah's reply is so ironic. That's what I'm trying to bring out. I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the actual creator. Can you say you fear the creator when you're defying him directly and sleeping through a storm that he brought to bring bring it to your attention? I mean, let me point out the ironies that we've seen in the story so far. Nineveh's evil came up before God. Jonah tries to escape being before God. Nineveh's evil went up. Jonah went down and down and down. Nineveh's evil was a problem to God. Jonah's evil created all sorts of problems for these sailors. God told Jonah to arise and go call out on his behalf against the evil of Nineveh. The captain told Jonah to arise and call out to God against the evil of this storm. Jonah claimed to fear God. The sailors demonstrate they actually fear God. Jonah's actions make the sailors afraid of the storm, but his words help them fear the actual God of the storm. This is irony, friends. It's a beautiful literary technique and it's what makes the book satire because there's just so much of it. You're meant to read the story, look at the hero prophet and go, what? And then go, why is he like that? And then go, why am I like that? That's what's going on. Verse 10, the sailors charge him with causing their trouble. This guy is challenging his God and that scares them to death. Verse 11, they said, what should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Do you see this repetition? It's just the, the narrator's like pounding this. A tempest fell and the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 13, the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. We start seeing this more, and more. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not his, in, lay not on us, innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah and hurled him in the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then these men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All of that is pretty self-explanatory, right? The men assume if Jonah knows this God, then he would know how this God will quiet the storm. That's why they ask him, verse eleven verse 12 on the one hand jonah's answer is in line with the character of his god you know how the sea will get quiet you know how that god will be appeased kill me well he's right on the one hand right the wages of sin is death but jonah knows full well he serves a god who is merciful and has forgiveness on those who repent and so he doesn't even represent god accurately in his answer Verse 13, the sailors don't want to do this. They don't want to huck this guy overboard. So they try to row. Storm gets worse. They ask God for mercy. They throw Jonah overboard. Instantly, the sea is calm. And here's another irony. In fleeing from God, trying to get away from the mission he had been given by God, Jonah actually creates more worshipers of God. <laughs> God, God will get his work done, won't he, friends? These sailors that knew nothing of Yahweh, the God who actually created the heavens and the earth, now fear him and worship him. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly three days and three nights. And that little fishy casket was where God saved Jonah's life and his soul and gave him one of the greatest lines in scripture. Salvation is of the Lord. But we'll look at all that next week. This week, we looked at chapter one. And what do we see? What's the point of all this? I started out by asking you, who are your enemies? Who, who do you think are the wrong kind of people? What do we learn from chapter one of Jonah? We learn that anyone can be the wrong kind of people. Anyone can become a part of the category of the wrong kind of people. That's the point. That's what Jonah's doing. He's made himself out to be a rebel against God. Friends, the the cry of Nineveh's evil from all the surrounding nations was coming up before God. All these other nations were suffering because of Nineveh's evil. Who's suffering in Jonah chapter one? All the people that get near him, anybody that gets close to him suffers. Not because they've done wrong, because he's wrong. The sailors are terrified. Jonah, he's not bothered at all. I remember several months ago as I was studying through this book and it started to occur to me, Jonah gets virtually everything he wants in chapter 1. Now, it can't be pleasant to be in the belly of a whale, but that's not actually what he wanted. That's the one thing he didn't want. He wanted to get away from God, he sort of essentially does. The storm falls, he's not bothered, he's sleeping. He would rather die than go to Nineveh and obey God, and so they throw him in the ocean, and before he drowns, he gets scooped up by a fish, but I mean, he gets what he wants. The people that don't get what they want are all the innocent bystanders, everybody around him. The sailors suffer the consequences of Jonah's sin, His disobedience creates all kinds of trouble for other people. Let me ask you a question about this. How often does the disobedience of God's people bring hardship into the lives of the pagans around us? When you act just like them, Letting the media tell you who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and the indignation you should feel and the hatred and the vehemence and the name calling just based on a token that showed that they were the wrong kind of people? You deprive them of the opportunity to get a smart answer, a thoughtful, salt, you know, salty and light-filled answer. That's what we're supposed to be, right? Salt and light in darkness? Now, when Christians disobey, tornadoes don't hover over your neighborhood, right? I mean, thank God. It's not that kind of correspondence. But when Christians default on our calling to be salt and light, to love our enemies, to sacrifice for the good of others, the pagans around us lose whatever good might have come into their lives that day, that moment from the God of all goodness whom we claim to know. Anyone can become the wrong kind of people if we let the world squeeze us into its mold in this way. When Christians are just as combative and belligerent and unreasonable as the lost people who have no truth. When we decline to speak of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. At the heart of this book is the question of how God wants his people to relate to pagans. That's what's going on. The perpetual question is Are we going to be assimilated and live a life just like they do? Or are we going to actually walk as countercultural followers of Jesus? Are our answers going to be different? Are our insights going to be different? Are our priorities going to be different? Our values, our loves, our driving motivations, our fears? They all ought to be different. And to the extent that they're the same, we make ourselves to be the wrong kinds of people. Friends, evil is one of the key words in the book of Jonah. It appears three times in this chapter. In verse 2, the evil of Nineveh comes up before the Lord. But look at verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, the soldiers are concerned about who has brought this evil on them. And in verse 8, they learn it's Jonah and they tell him, who's brought this evil on us? Do you see? jonah has become the wrong kind of person he's the one bringing evil that's the point of jonah chapter one it's not about human potential and repentance it's not about the god of second chances and the danger of running from god it's the danger of being the wrong kind of people and we had the potential to be so different from that friends Let me make some applications and then I'm done. How can you tell if you're being the wrong kind of person? And let me be very clear here. The gospel makes you a whole new person. The most the world can do is force you to act like them, not be them. Okay? So I'm not saying you need to check your heart to see if you literally are the wrong kind of person. The question here is a matter of how you're acting. In the gospel, we are new creatures. You are different. You are not going to behave as ancient Israelites. You just won't. You're different if you have the spirit, because most of them didn't. But the gospel ethic always is grow up into who you are in Jesus. So here are three tests Jonah chapter 1 gives us to tell whether you're acting like the wrong kind of people. How about this one? The first test is the no words test. The no words test. What I mean is, if you didn't say anything, would people be able to tell what you really believe? If you used no words, could they watch your life and see what you really believe? Jonah doesn't speak until verse 9. Literarily, verse 9 is the pinnacle of the chapter. Verses 9 and 10, right there. We're waiting for the prophet. What do prophets do? Well, they're words people. Words people speak, and if it's God's message, transformation happens. Jonah doesn't speak until verse nine. In many ways, the whole chapter is parallel. It's a chiasm, building up to and flowing out from verse nine. Jonah's words are the center of the whole thing. And you know the problem with his words? They contradict everything Jonah has done to that point. So what about the no words test? This is how to tell if you are becoming or acting like being influenced by the world to be the wrong kind of people, the no words test. Would people actually be able to watch your life and tell that you believe in a God of love, a God of grace, a God who makes peace, a God who does not audition, but lets people come simply on the basis of their acknowledgement of need. I am broken, I need you. I am wrong, make me right. The wrong kind of people fail the no words test The second test is the social effect test. What happens to the people and relationships in the room when you show up? The social effect test can help us see who are the wrong kind of people, right? Jonah's presence brought chaos and disaster to the people around him. When Jonah showed up, disaster followed. That's one of the signs in this chapter, he's the wrong kind of people. Jesus came, yes, he said, and and James even mentioned this in his Sunday school lesson this morning. Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. He did provoke and berate religious leaders. Yes, but think about this. Jesus didn't have a sword-like divisive effect with everyone. He brought people together. He brought together insiders and outsiders, religious elite and religious nobodies. He brought together rich and poor. He brought together uh, political progressives and political conservatives. He had Matthew and Simon the Zealot in his little apostolic band. Matthew who supported Rome and worked for them and Simon who wanted to un- overthrow them at the point of the sword. Jesus brought them together. What happens when you come into the room? Do you have any good relationships in your life that are long standing? Do any of your adult children respect you? Have you ever found a church that is good enough for you to be a member for decades? Or do you always, in your in your wake of relationships, is there just havoc and heartache and nobody quite understands you? And maybe it's you, maybe you're the wrong kind of people. We see that with Jonah in this chapter, don't we? It just feels to me like it's very uncomfortable in here. I can see people literally like tapping their fingers which means they might be really mad at me. I'm not sure. Maybe you think the wrong kind of preach people are preachers. Hey, here I am signing up for it. The third test is, so, so we've had the, 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 the no words test, the social effect test, and thirdly, the gospel goggles test, the gospel goggles test. The question here is how do you see people. The gospel tells us three things about all people. They are all sinners. They're all loved by God. They're all savable by Jesus. The only division that matters among any group of people is their relationship to Jesus. In every group of people, there are children of darkness and children of light, citizens of the kingdom of heaven and citizens of the kingdom of this earth. That's the only distinction that matters. When you put on the goggles of the gospel, All you see are light, people who are in the light because of Jesus and darkness, people who are in the dark because they haven't come to Jesus. Is that how you see them or do you still see them with the same eyes the world sees? Well, you support that group, so you're the wrong kind of people. You support this group, so you're my kind of people. Friends, those aren't the goggles of the gospel, right? Galatians 3.26 tells us, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's the test, friends. Is that how you see people? All unified to you in Jesus or there are other secondary things that matter actually more to you when you put the gospel goggles on how do you see them there's no other distinction that matters right we have the same root problem and we have the same need of salvation one of the things that impressed me about the 2017 movie Wonder Woman was how it ended She's sitting in her study and there's a voiceover of her reflecting on what she learned. If you remember the movie, the whole mission that Wonder Woman has is to defeat Ares, the god of war. And if she defeats Ares, the problem among humanity will be solved. World War II is being, or World War I is being all stirred up because of Ares, the god of war. And they actually eliminate him and they end war and they bring peace to mankind. But Wonder Woman suddenly realizes that hasn't solved the problem. And here's how the movie ends. She says, I used to want to save the world to end war and bring peace to mankind. But then I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light. I learned inside every one of them, there will always be both. The choice each must make for themselves, something no hero will ever defeat. I've touched the darkness that lives between the light. I've seen the worst of this world and the best. I've seen the terrible things men do to each other in the name of hatred and the lengths that they'll go for love. And now I know. Only love can save this world. So I stay, I fight, and I give for the world that I know it can be. This is my mission, now and forever. That's how the movie ends. And she's partly right. Only love can save the world. But she's wrong that the love has to originate within us. It's the love of God. And when you, and when you put on the goggles of the gospel, all you see are people who have come to him and know they're loved, And people who have not and are still the wrong kind of people living in rebellion against him. So friends, let's have Jonah do its work on us, shall we? Chapter 1 is the reminder that anyone can become the wrong kind of people. Chapter 2 shows us God's happy to love and embrace and forgive even the wrong kind of people. Aren't you glad? Because that means he'll accept even you. Father, I pray that you would help us receive the message of this book as it actually is. Thank you for it. Let it do its good work in us. In Jesus' name.